Cybernetics is a term that broadly defined encompasses nearly all human interaction. More narrowly, and with the help of Hollywood, images of intelligent robots and computer-enhanced humans come to mind. But in the real world, and especially when it comes to dealing with issues of pervasive scale and self-reinforcing centers of power, such as social networks, the study of human-computer interaction becomes more than one regarding simple inputs and outputs, but rather understanding and dealing with entirely new and almost indomitable systems that by the nature of their size pose a real threat to the average citizen, whether that person actively engages with them or not. And in many cases, the citizen, by virtue of the convenience and utility of the systems, has no choice. Well, I'm not a crook. I've burned everything I've got. Military-industrial complex. We are here to destroy the control over the industry of other people. I did not trade arms for hostage. It's been time for the president Hello, welcome to the Cyber Bunker. I can't see you all because I am only audio and I'm also blinded by the reflection of all this brushed chrome. Tonight we're going to be talking about cybernetics. And I've got here Hans Lander and Adam Smith. Hello. Hey, everyone. So cybernetics, it's, uh, it's kind of a joke and it was kind of always a joke. Uh, but it's an interesting, I think, uh, kind of intellectual movement, I guess, is the way that I would characterize it. Even at the time, people were like, eh, I, don't, I don't know if this is a real thing. Uh, and then eventually it kind of got memed into uh, the notion of cyborgs and the information superhighway and whatever you really wanted it to be. But I think that it's more interesting if we kind of look at it from the sphere of uh, the kind of per- post-World War II uh, newly emerging elites trying to figure out how to even conceptualize the power that they ended up with over human society and sort of these uh, these systems that they found themselves in possession of with the necessity to control them, ideally for the the benefit of mankind. But maybe we can start by uh, what's uh, what's y'all's impression of when somebody says cybernetics, what's your estimate of the bullshit quote uh, they are, uh, they're emanating? Well, Whenever I hear netics in something, uh, Where else immediately, I mean, you hear it in a lot of like, uh, corporate HR speech for technology. Wait, cybernetic and, or just netic? Because I think the internet kind of the, the netic of... suffix. Whenever yeah. I hear the suffix of netic, I immediately kind of cringe, and I'm like, yeah, you know, fuck you. But 
especially as someone who works in tech and you, you see how a lot of what is supposed to be our future kind of unfolding works from behind the scenes. It, you're, I mean, it's very cringeworthy to see people assuming that it's going to be, you know, automatons anytime soon. Um, but whenever I hear cyber and something, I immediately assume, oh, this is boring. So it's a mix of boring and uh, probably just bullshit. That's how I kind of assume whenever I hear something, you know, a combination or a play on words of cybernetics in my day-to-day life. I was I was going to say um, something to the effect that didn't, uh, I can never say his first name, Zbigniew Brzezinski, the Polish guy who was Secretary of State, I believe, under <clears throat> Carter, at least. National Security Advisor. Okay, thanks. Yeah, he never rose to that level of weirdness. He was pretty much, yeah, I think he was NSC for a while. He was also just sort of like a bagman type who ran around the world and kind of did dirty work, but... He was he never man Henry Kissinger. Yeah, right. he, he was he was the um he was the like a nice successor to the Kissinger legacy, although he didn't have the bravado. So he never really rose to that level of uh character that Kissinger did. Yeah, so the reason I brought that up was he had a quote. I think he had a yeah, no, he has a there's a book on this. I, I trying to find when it was published but you can imagine it was sort of around when he was famous obviously is it the grand chessboard no no let me let me finish guys <laughs> i've gotten two words in and you guys got probably 10 so um so zbigniew brzezinski uh, the technotronic era involves the gradual appearance of a more controlled society so <laughs> such a society would be dominated by an elite unrestrained by traditional values Soon it will be possible to assert almost continuous surveillance over every citizen and maintain up-to-date complete files containing even the most personal information about the citizen. These files will be subject to instantaneous retrieval by the authorities. This is from his book, Between Two Ages, America's Role in the Technotronic Era. Well, I'm in awe of the coining of technotronic. That's like, it's even weirder. But teca, teca, technotronics, technotronics, technotronic, technotronics. I'm, I think it's techno, but I think the page I'm on misspelled it, and it says technotronic. I guess what I'm saying is a lot of this is just fluff, and I think it sounds cool to to certain people. Maybe it's a little bit cliched at this point, but back then, I guess it was sort of. If you watched um, 2001 Space Odyssey, Hal was IBM offset by one letter. And and it's just that sort of corporate computing vision of the big computer brain running you know, files and everybody. I think that was sort of a big thing in the 70s, uh, a little bit in the 80s. Well, you know, as I said with the word cyber, the root word cyber, whenever you hear that, I immediately think of government or kind of stale company or stale corporation. Um, and, you know, the phrase boring comes to mind, and, you know, and it, it's basically just uh, searching for kids using Wireshark and like a script they pulled off the internet to, I don't know, like bust up one of your front end servers or whatever. Uh, it, it technotronic, technotronical, you know, I, I don't, whatever word he's trying to create in his adult-minded Polish mind uh, is is really um, 
stupid. I mean, again, I've heard the word mechatronic before, but that refers to a specific kind of mix of what uh, trade school style mechanical engineering and programming, maybe. Uh, if there's a better book that I think encapsulates a social commentary, um, it was written by a French person, uh, something you know slightly more intelligent than a Polish person, and that would be um, the Technological Society. Jeez, man, are we doing Polish jokes tonight? Yeah, by uh, by Jacques Ellul. Uh, a much better book written in nineteen. 19- uh, 1954, although I don't think it was translated into English until the mid-60s. Um, so the American audience kind of missed missed out on it for a long time. But it's a much more poignant book, uh, and much more understanding, uh, and I think clever way of analyzing the potential future of technology as well as sort of its historical progression and why it's uh, become you know as used as it is, and he this is written in the fifties. Uh, but it is noting that I think it is worth noting that uh, Brzezinski, I mean, he's basically twirling his mustache on the page. There, he's he's not being subtle. He's sort of laughing at the average rube that, for whatever reason, is reading this trash. And uh, you know, he he's basically advertising for you what they had always intended to do, and they were sort of waiting for the technology to catch up. To, for, to kind of fulfill their their needs in the 80s when he was at his most prominent they were basically working with very very early rtbms's uh if that they mostly had like flat file systems they were still using magnetic tape yeah, this things. predates all the relational stuff by a good yeah. you know 10 to 20 I years mean, depending on what you're like, looking at a lot of the, the, the early basics and uh, sort of logical mechanics for what became RDBMSs or relational database management systems and SQL, I mean, it starts to come into effect really in the 70s is when the research is being done on like logical algebra and um, relationship theory from a set, mathematical set, set theory. I mean, it was IBM set actually theory. who kind of yeah. came up with the concept and then Oracle basically just copied it. Right, right. Yeah, and and so like you know third normal form rotation uh, or cardinalization and all that all these theories are basically developed in the seventies and eighties, but the the elites didn't have the technology at the time that allowed them to track and uh, more importantly aggregate and analyze large amounts of data, which is really what they wanted to do. They wanted to project trends. They wanted to find hidden patterns. Um, that sort of data mining or data analysis was not really available to them uh, for a good 20 odd years until processing power, you know, was brought up to speed with storage constraints and, uh, you know, clever software engineering that allowed our DBMSs to be faster and to be more manageable and have APIs and all this kind of nonsense. So, um, it, you know, he's basically admitting that the the elites have this idea of the world they want to create, but that they're uh, hindered by their lack of technological uh, progress into the 1980s and 90s. Yeah, that's a very old story, because if you look at where cybernetics comes from, it's, it's impossible to talk about this without talking about the guy who literally wrote the book, Norbert Wiener, 
who wrote the <laughs> book Cybernetics. And like, okay, so there's a rule of thumb wherever your subtitle has the or or on as the first word. Uh, you are that's your your bat signal that you're furiously jerking yourself off. Cybernetics colon or control and communication in the animal and the machine. Just just start like tapping out on the, that word on the or. table the uh, the like seven fourteenths or whatever Terminator theme and that nice uh, atemporal uh, pattern there. I mean that's that's a terrible. It's like the. It reminds me of like a, a title to one of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy sequel novels or something. Yeah. No, but no, I promise we'll we'll stop shitting on these guys at some point and talk about why it's cool. Actually, let's do that now. So, uh, <laughs> good idea. So the 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 roots of all this stuff, like we're we're so jaded at this point that we we sort of uh, it's like you know you watch some uh, some like Hollywood blockbuster and you're like, oh yeah. I bet that's the point where the hero is going to suffer a setback and then find an unlikely ally. Tell me another one. Hmm. But like, you have to understand that it, it's like a lot of these tropes are cliched at this point because they're things that became extremely widespread and notable and were not widespread and notable at the time. So cybernetics, I'm going to contend it just like every other thing in present society derives from WW2, specifically the field of operations research, if you look at what uh, a lot of the progenitors of this field were involved in, they're fundamentally involved in uh, how do you take data from things like radar stations uh, things like uh, uh, convoy maps, uh, your loss data about uh, how many planes you're losing or where your intercepts are happening, and how you turn that into a system to win the war. How do you get as many bombers as possible to the best location to drop the most bombs, to do the most damage, and get the most of them home so that you can do the same thing tomorrow? And that's actually what uh, Norbert Wiener was uh, involved in when he was developing a lot of these ideas. He was literally involved in the uh, development of uh, essentially automatic uh, anti-aircraft guns where they're not uh, wildly uh, throwing shrapnel into the air, but yeah. they're relying on radar signals coming in, which are noisy. And when we say noise, like statistics has really only been a thing since the 1920s or so and it's really only been a thing that's been useful since about the 1940s at absolute earliest because well the computers you're saying yeah the the only time where the horsepower became available to actually do the computations necessary to do useful statistics uh i mean that's 1940s when you start to see electro 
well, el- that's why mechanical they, and electronic computers that's available. Why they developed the computers. It I mean, was, if, if you ever that. it was ballistic tables and things. Right. Like that. I mean, ballistic yeah. tables are uh, are just purely uh, analytical. Yes. Um, there's no yes. there's no estimation involved there. But what he was trying to do was you get radar signals coming in, and that basically is like okay, how radar works. You send out a pulse in a certain direction, and it gives you a reflection back. So now you have a direction and a distance, effectively. You don't know, like, that could be something 100 miles wide. That could be something, you know, the size of a pigeon. You have no idea. You know that there's, like, some point of interception over there that far away. You also don't know which direction it's going. You get another pulse back, and now you have a second reflection. And you don't know if that's the same object or a different object. It could be that you had two objects that switched places between when you did the pulsing. It could be that that's the same object slightly offset. There's a lot of possible processes that can lead to two different uh, signals coming back like at two different times with two different locations. So in order to aggregate all of these and say, okay, well, I think there's probably this many objects out there. They're at these locations and they're heading in this direction. This is all like super straightforward stuff from our perspective now that we've got the kind of the conceptual framework involved but at the time you know this is extremely non-trivial as far as like okay what do your like like what assumptions do you make about liability of the electronics that you're actually using because when you get back a number that's not necessarily just the number that's the number plus you're using vacuum tubes. They were made by a dude making minimum wage who's been working a 16-hour shift because there's a war on. So your actual machine is telling you this shit is all over the map. You don't. You have no idea if you just look at the raw signal. It's extremely difficult to interpret. So you need to figure out how to smooth it down, how to model, okay, well, if we assume that there's this amount of noise coming out and this amount of actual thing driving this signal, then we can make kind of the back extrapolation and say that we think they're coming from that away. So shoot in roughly this direction. Yeah. If I can jump in, um, I've actually looked at some of these old operational research texts and, uh, don't ask me why, but they're kind of interesting just kind of from a historical perspective, frankly, because they they were written typically by guys who were mathematicians. Um, I don't know if statistician was actually like a separate discipline at that point, but places like MIT would be employed uh, for this activity during the war. And so the guys who wrote these things were basically uh, professional academics and they were applying it though to real world scenarios and what you see is that there's a lot of analytical shortcuts that they're making because they don't have the computer power that we do today let alone the the sort of 
somewhat generalizable AI tools that you can throw at a problem of just a bunch of like messy data and then have it churn out some sort of pattern matching system. It, it was much more manual. And so they would come up with um, probability functions and ways to make optimal decisions based upon sort of preset models that they were, as Hank is saying, um, creating models out of equations. And so you input this, this, and this, and then this is the sort of number output, and then you rank them and you pick the best one or something like that. Uh, but it was very specialized. It would be like, okay, we're looking at submarines at the Atlantic. We have to figure out based on this number of appearances of U-boat attacks, where to send the convoys next. We want to minimize this. We want to maximize that. That's basically optimization. You're maxing or minning. And so you have to have uh, enough data to obviously compute it. And they're trying to work around the lack of data or try to figure out a clever way to do it analytically. But it really is sort of algebra and maybe some like basic calculus. But it's um, it's just very smart guys like coming up with ways to do it on a chalkboard, basically. And it's got to be stuff that's actually implementable in real time in electronic circuitry or not even electronic at this point well yeah that that the stuff i'm looking at isn't so much for the computer but you could put it into a computer but i think it leads to the need for a computer if you're trying to do this more quickly because you are dependent on a limited amount of people who are qualified to understand this stuff let alone write the models themselves so right you do need to kind of automate this at some point if you're going to scale it so i mean there's a natural kind of uh I, I mean, it, it seems natural at the time, but at the time it was you know, novel and breathtaking that, you know, you look out, you know, we, we metaphorize uh, these things, we uh, anthropomorphize them, um, but you can also do the reverse. You look out with this radar and you get this signal back and that tells you where to look and where to shoot and where to hit and these are all physical metaphors that have their natural relation to the literal human body. And you start thinking about how uh, like a boxer uh, conducts a boxing match. There's a reason why they call it the sweet science. There's a lot of estimation of where somebody is going to be, of how tired you're going to get how tired you can make the other guy and this starts to look like you know the the metaphor of the state as a body uh, i mean it 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 goes back at least as far as uh the uh, the famous uh illustration of a leviathan where you have a uh, king charles Literally, his body is composed of all the people of England doing their thing, you know, forming his limbs that he then controls to his own ends and so forth. And when you look at this in the context of, okay, we're describing the operation of things like radar signals with this math, doesn't it therefore indicate that you might be able to describe the operation of things like human perception of objects with this kind of math. Like the 
brain, the physical brain is doing some physical stuff in order for you to look out into the room and see a thing, detect it, recognize it, reach out and grab it. And that thing should like that process should be describable via in principle, the same sorts of operations that they're using to uh, decide uh, where to uh, shoot down fighter planes and how many to shoot down and recursively feeding how many they actually did shoot down into how good their algorithm was. So they start to think about the extrapolation of this uh, kind of generalized notion of feedback control and noisy perception into this general uh very you know kind of inter uh, interdepartmental uh field of cybernetics which is all about um these kinds of generalized notions of uh, feedback control limited perception noisy perception so you're saying this traces back to the 40s but uh the, the term didn't really enter the lexicon until probably the 70s right i mean there there were kind of multiple waves of this the 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 cybernetics book came out in 1948 and a lot of the kind of formative uh stuff was happening really in the 40s 50s 60s there was kind of a resurgence uh in the 70s after people kind of uh, got jaded by some of the initial promises of the uh, the field and uh, <clears throat> started to actually try to add rigor to some of these claims and uh, put them into specific contexts. Well, we're, we're because... talking about very applied computer uh, solving of problems, but... I always thought, and it sounds like the book implies this as well, that cybernetics is the incorporation of computing into like the biological realm. Like a cyborg is the Terminator because there's a robot covered in human skin. So where does that sort of play in here? Because from what I'm hearing so far, it's really just, uh, you know, we need a bunch of iron to solve this hard problem. As opposed well, I mean, to that's, fusing I'm, I'm it with a human. I'm explaining the context of where it, where it comes from. Yeah, okay. But they, like, the, the reason why we have this actually extremely accurate idea that when somebody says cybernetics, they're probably bullshitting over metaphysics is because they took these concrete problems, took the theoretical implications, and used them to bullshit about metaphysics for, like, 30 years until people lost interest. So, I mean, that's that's the, the sort of pithy description of it. But along the way, they did a lot of interesting stuff. So, so one, one of the other major guys who was involved in uh, in this field early on was Warren McCulloch. McCulloch? Uh, it's an Irish name I can't pronounce. Uh, it was a neurophysiologist. And uh, Weiner knew... Or Wiener, how do we say his name, Hank? Wiener or Weiner? I have no idea. I'm gonna, I don't like none I mean, of these guys. The German pronunciation would be Weiner. Weiner, okay, I'm gonna go with that because I don't want to say Wiener. So, Weiner, uh, when he arrived at MIT, 
he b- became friends with this guy named Arturo Rosenbluth, and uh, he was a kind of fellow at the Harvard Medical School. And uh, the two of them were basically friends for 20-odd years, and uh, a lot of, I guess, Viner's experience with the human anatomy and trying to delve into this realm between the hard sciences and some of the soft sciences and also delving into the realms between biological versus technological sciences, especially around, you know, the forties, um, really comes from his friendship with this guy. And it ends up, you know, being that, uh, there's all these groups that form across the United States, mostly just for academics, uh, and they're uh, the Society for General Systems Research, and they start basically it's like giving big brain nibbas. Like yeah, it just they, they all, all this stuff is completely. Yeah, I mean, they, they, I can't really describe what they're doing. It, it seems like they had a system of publications wherein they would try to apply cybernetic cybernetical cybernetic based and technological based solutions to problems in uh sociology politics psychiatry uh economics especially especially with like oscar Oscar morgenstern uh they got really into anthropology with margaret mead um and this just kind of went Haywire. I mean, I get McCulloch eventually went on to become the director of a neuropsychiatric institute, but didn't really go anywhere with that. Uh, and ends up being this guy named Forrester who goes on to uh, actually carry these ideas with him for uh, a long time and propel them into the wider social sphere. Uh, he was a professor at uh, the Sloan School of Management at MIT. So what Adam is talking about here with sort of uh, logistics and operations, research operations, science, is uh, a lot of it's really pioneered at MIT, as he said. Um, and it, it really becomes very popular, as uh, as Hank mentioned, statistics goes mainstream. Statistics is now computerized. It can be more easily calculated. We can actually you know, discern confidence intervals and discern standard deviations without you know several days of arguing and proof checking and so on and you know we can then start making actual statistical calculations um, very quickly so ends up this Forrester guy uh, he, he sort of is the last guy you know last big person to continue these ideas because as Hank mentioned a lot of them gave up on cybernetics uh, they gave up on these societies because they were just writing about the same bullshit over and over again. Um, their time had passed in the spotlight, although their influence continued to kind of echo around academia for years to come. Well, and that, like, it's not so much that they they gave up from irrelevancy, but the, the fundamental uh, precepts of... Uh, th- this kind of you know cybernetic way of thinking, like when when I talk to my manager, it is a feedback session. 
Like that's feedback is not a word that existed prior to the 1940s. It is not a concept that was that kind of existed with metaphysical rigor before the 1940s. The notion that you have some machine or organism or person or like some extremely atomized corporate cog that just goes and does their own thing, man, with random errors until feedback is exerted upon them. Like that, that is something that has just absorbed into the core of the average, uh, you know, wage working person. And to the, to the point where people just think that, oh, that's just, you know, how it's always been. But that is actually historically a very recent notion that a lot of these guys were promulgating. And it's not an accident uh, or a happenstance that a lot of uh, quote-unquote cybernetic thinking, it had kind of its greatest expression uh, behind the Iron Curtain in the USSR. So you had these guys, uh, particularly Oscar Lang and uh, Viktor Glushkov, um, and there, there's a fantastic uh, novel, uh, Red Plenty, uh, based on uh, a, a nonfiction uh, book called uh, Soviet Cybernetics um, that kind of explores how this actually played out uh, in the context of the USSR. Because, you know, for all of the uh, ambitions of a lot of the the Western theoreticians that you know one could think about the economy as a a giant system with these feedback mechanisms of prices and interest rates and quantities and shortages and surpluses. The people running the USSR actually did have a need for actual tools because they actually did purport to have control over this gigantic economic there was a guy named uh, leontiev i believe and he he basically just described the entire soviet economy in a giant uh, linear algebra equation it was like here's your inputs here's your outputs and a giant matrix ensues and you just have to solve for what your outputs are telling you what your input should be yeah and those those like it sounds naive but that technique had like that technique does not predate the Soviet Union. The particular techniques of linear optimization that they were trying to do things like, uh, you know, you have a certain, uh, like the, the canonical one is uh, you have a, a, a steel mill that's putting out uh, certain amounts of rolled steel and you need to figure out how to optimally cut it. So you have minimum amount of waste and the maximum number of filled orders like that that is something that you can rigorously solve and you could not prior to like 1920 something or so uh so i mean it it makes sense if you're looking at this gigantic factory and it's like i have this amount of coal i have this amount of iron ore i have this amount of orders coming in there's only one steel mill in this province because you know we we russia now so it's it 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 makes sense intellectually to uh try to just solve the thing just you know these are the things that people need 
These are the factories that are available to make them. Yeah. I know what we require. I know what we're producing. So you just go and you solve it all. The, the problem, though, and this is something that uh, Uncle Ted actually pointed out in his book, um, the Anti-Tech Revolution, I think it's called, something like that. It was after the uh, original manifesto. But he basically said, like, I don't, I don't remember if he went into the detail of actually the Soviet Union, re- the real case of the Soviet Union, but if you're going to try to use that approach for the planet in order to optimize everything, uh, the number of simultaneous equations you would have to have on your, I mean, the spreadsheet that we have today would not be big enough. In other words, like you can get about a million rows in Excel and there would be like a Googleplex of these things. And I, he oh, gave the numbers, like he estimated, like how many like processing cycles you'd need. And we don't, I don't think there's enough computers on the planet to like do it. Yeah. I, I frankly don't find like the, the, um, computational objections convincing because there's a lot of simplifying assumptions that you can make that are actually pretty accurate. Well, of course you have to, I mean, th- but that's his point. It's like, you would never yeah. be able to do everything perfectly. You're going to have to do that. Well, yeah. And it, 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 it's not like it works out perfectly in like it, it absolutely doesn't. I mean, we've seen with this China situation, it's like, Oh, surprise, you weren't optimizing over a 20 year time period where you, incorporated sufficient tail risks from you know mabat soup wipes out 95 percent of my antibiotic supply and now the workers at my like crab fishery all have the chinese pneumonia and so uh, now i can't turn that into cat food and uh like so on and so on like it it it's not uh the the objection there's this like friedrich hayek uh argument that like well if you set uh quantities and uh, outputs and inputs you don't know how much people metaphysically value something at uh unless uh, you actually see what they do so you can't actually figure out uh, uh like uh sort of from nothing what prices should be, what quantities should be, because human behavior is just this extremely complex thing. There, there was this guy, Oscar uh, Lang, uh, a uh, kind of Polish uh, economist, who's like, look, guys, guys, nobody's saying that we can't have prices. If you go to the store in the Soviet Union and you want bread, it's not like, here's your bread, dude. Like, you, you still use physical currency and pay a certain amount of physical currency. Yeah, I mean, they, they even have banks. Uh, you put your money in your, your yeah, savings I in mean, a bank account. Like, things are expensive. You get, like, you know, market interest rates. Or, or uh, the prices would be so low that there would be a shortage. And that was right. common so, for luxury goods, like cars. I mean, if you consider that even a luxury, but... Uh, that was so the, a big item that you'd have to wait for. The The way that you do this under his approach, and I really, again, I'm going to reiterate, read Red Plenty. It's one of my favorite books. It's fantastic. Uh, you look at this sucker and you apply the sucker being the economy writ large, and you apply these cybernetic theories of control where if you have a massive shortage of some thing then 
you well, it depends on if it's on the supply or the demand side. But if you have a massive shortage uh, because demand is too high, then wait, you what's raise- what's the shortage on the demand side? It's like nobody well, it's, wants to buy my product. I mean, yeah, I mean, it, if like a surplus, is it, a, it's like the inverse static, of a shortage. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Like if you've got if you've got just like if everybody wants shoes and like they're trying to buy shoes and there's just no shoes, then you raise the price of shoes until a lot of people are like, ah, I don't need shoes that badly. And eventually things equilibrate. And instead of doing it uh, sort of by this hazy market mechanism, you do it by looking at empirical supply and demand over the entire economy and setting the price, setting the price of the metaphysical shoe. And the same thing on the uh, the other side. If you have just like so many golf balls stocking your you know, Soviet sporting goods stores that you can't off- offload them. I'm sorry, I might have gotten the uh, the the directionality here uh, backwards, but you, you get the idea. You raise and lower prices by fiat, uh, so that you just buy fiat, equilibrate supply and demand, you and clear you the take market. advantage of the quote-unquote efficiencies of the fact that you don't have advertising because there is one vodka, comrade, and it is called vodka, and it has a certain price, and you can buy it or go fuck yourself. Uh, you take advantage of the fact that you have theoretically one gigantic complex at the magnetic mountain pumping out steel uh, with the greatest economies of scale, theoretically, that you've ever seen. And eventually, I mean, like people forget that every corporation on the inside is a communist autocracy. Is that the Coase like, theory or who came up with that argument? I mean, it's uh, it partially derives from Coase. It's like theory of the firm stuff. Yeah. Um, it's mostly did like inter-firm stuff. But like your company decides what to charge for its products. It doesn't have market mechanisms. It doesn't have market mechanisms telling you personally what to work on. It just is like, no, you've been drafted. You're oh yeah. This- Corporations are like the Kremlin. I mean, you got to appease the boss. You got to play politics. It's, oh my God. Yeah. The, there's this notion of like interfirm a competition where it's like, well, if we just really suck that badly, then eventually somebody eats our lunch unless we have a monopoly or the government favors us or whatever. But like the, uh, this sort of this cybernetic approach in the Soviet union, like you can see there's an obvious kind of uh, intellectual affinity there. There's a lot of uh, kind of intra Soviet scheming as far as these, uh, you know, shadow prices, they were called, uh, like, uh, is that a little bit uh, too close to co- to uh, capitalist decadence? Like, you know, is this really in accordance with the labor theory of value, et cetera, et cetera? Uh, you know, this this all gets very inside baseball, but you can see why this might be appealing to a certain segment of Soviet society until you realize that a lot of this assumes, uh, you know, not just not just no errors, like they assume random errors 
they they assume that like people aren't gaming the system they assume that people aren't smarter than these very simple models that you can derive and they're crapping out whatever shitty product they can get to make the big number on the big graph go up so that they can meet their plan quota. Uh, but in reality, things just kind of suck more and more and your economy gets more and more decrepit until you hit Brezhnev st- stagnation. And eventually, you know, the Americans with their relatively free economy at the time end up eating your lunch. So, I mean, that's the the micro gloss of the kind of Soviet, uh, Soviet cybernetic, uh, experiment. But like it, it, again, it's more interesting if you think about like, why wouldn't that be the case? And to what extent do these ideas just end up pervading? Because like, if you look at how your own company operates and they talk about their yearly plan and like their performance indications and you know usually they have like the big graph with the line that goes up and it all sounds remarkably you know goss plan uh the the soviet five-year plan plan agency uh you know we we try to interpret uh the big line which tells us uh which projects to invest in like these are all very cybernetic uh, control systems. They just don't have the cybernetic utopia at the end of them. They just have kind of the uh, the Brezhnev suck uh, at the end of them. Well, it seems like maybe we can kind of postulate that cybernetics and that sort of uh, reductionism when applied to uh, certainly a very large society. So let's say like the Soviet Union, uh, like the United States, uh, like the European Union, perhaps, uh, like China, uh, you eventually, maybe you succeed and you do create a sort of purely cybernetic system. You have uh, a mix of technology that allows you to aggregate and calculate vast amounts of data and do these sort of Gaussian elimination techniques on every single price theory problem and logistical problem and whatever. And you're able to construct the sort of managerial social end of that technology using ideas that were started and postulated in the 20s and 30s. Um, and you, you so let's say you arrive at this utopia but once you, uh, I think that once you create a cybernetic system, it's very unlikely you're going to expand that system uh, because you have will have worked for decades to perfect, you know, the functioning of that system at that fixed state. Um, and I'm not saying I've actually always been in favor of a more managed country or managed society to begin with, but uh, it does seem that. Uh, there are certain limits to computation and there are limits to our ability to actually organize computation more effectively, although maybe this has changed in the, uh, uh, you know, essentially 30 years since the Soviet Union collapsed, um, that, you know, maybe now we can actually manage and grow and be somewhat dynamic at the same time, or is it we're always going to fall into this trap of we construct this vast cybernetic system but then you permanently stagnate until you collapse because you uh, you've expanded all of your resources and all of your social capital towards constructing a now sort of out of date thing well I think 
I think you're articulating some of the system concerns that any time a system grows too large, it just becomes uh, overwhelmingly expensive to maintain, even though, ironically, the reason you develop that system is to make things more efficient. I guess right. the reason it becomes more expensive is you don't anticipate the edge cases and those edge cases start piling up and your workarounds for those edge cases start becoming very redundant. And I mean, just look at the United States. It's like, oh, uh, everybody's equal, yet there's billionaires and there's people with negative net worth, yet we all get to vote for once at the ballot box, which makes no sense. And then you have all these weird workarounds where they're like, the billionaires are lobbying and they basically control everything. But then people start protesting. I mean, it's just, it's so absurdly weird how much energy is spent to get around the obvious failings of the system. And the system is somewhat simple. Well, for you say that those reasons, are workarounds, but, but those seem to be uh, part of the American cybernetic at this point. Like it, that the, the dynamic between the rich and the poor in America is, is effectively a cybernetic system. It is uh, the manipulation of a huge amount of people into effectively automatons and that they act a certain way you know like the, the the dialogue around rich and poor in america has been uh a thing for well over 100 years now and the dialogue always revolves around this notion that uh the, the rich always go too far at some point and the poor and the average person always finds a way to push back at some other point and at some point, you know, the good guys get in the government and make things and make life better. And the bad guys have to kind of scurry away and hide for a decade or two. Then they take over again. And, you know, the belief in this sort of historiography is how people are programmed. I mean, people really. You know, I'll call this the pendulum fallacy. Like yeah, the yeah. idea that. The idea that there has to be a counterbalancing force that is roughly equal to whatever you're talking about, like when when you when you say like George Soros and the response is but the Koch brothers though, it's like okay, but like what enforces that there needs to be two singularly identifiable things that are roughly in opposition to each other and roughly as powerful. Like, let's say hypothetically that some dude just decided to blow $10 billion instead of the customary hundred million or so dollars, like buying an election. People are, oh, you can't buy an election. You'd piss too many people off. It's like, okay, well, there's like 200 million people that theoretically can vote in america well that, that's what yang in, in effect he was basically making a promissory note on his candidacy look well, like, vote yeah, for me, like, i'll, I'll like, give you this fuck and, promissory notes like you got 200 million people they're spread over 50 states you need you need 51 percent of 51 percent of states in order to win the electoral college so round it to a quarter that's 50 million people so if you're worth 50 billion dollars you can literally write a check for $1,000 to the entirety of your constituency. Like, you could do it. There's, there's no, like, law of physics that prevents you from doing that. 
like and it probably isn't even that expensive because there's things like bandwagon effects there's probably ways that you can get votes for significantly uh, less Bloom, than Bloom, bloomberg is uh giving people 150 dollars on social media to say something nice about him i love michael bloomberg for the, for the record this this podcast i'm, could I'm glad somebody does you by michael bloomberg hint hint He's paying his staffers a lot of money. I still recommend people go, like, get a job. Oh, absolutely. Get that money. Yeah. 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 But, like, to the to the point, to the substantive point, like, there's the, the notion of feedback is often uh, extrapolated to this fallacious idea of, like, because feedback exists, therefore feedback always has to be this thing that is resulting in whatever like synthetic dialectic you happen to think is happening. And that that's just not the case. Like sometimes brute force just wins. So let's get, I mean, we started down this long tangent because we were talking about Forrester and I want to bring it around real quick in that Forrester, he created uh, this course and really not just a course but a subject in of itself with its own books and everything called industrial dynamics and it was his idea to uh, regard all industries both independently and their cohesive nature together in a cybernetic system and then how to predict their behavior based on that this was in 1961 in 1964 uh, because urban decay is starting to set in, mostly because people realize that large amounts of um, uh, African Americans in a city context does not work well, uh, people bail out and the urban systems start to decay. Uh, well, he, for whatever reason, decides and is asked by someone or by multiple people to get involved in building something called urban dynamics. Uh, and then in 1971, he, he, uh, he puts all of his works, urban dynamics, industrial dynamics, all these other works, and a lot of uh, the accumulated theories of the cybernetic community into a book called World Dynamics. Um uh, this book goes on to become sort of the groundwork that Dennis Meadows and his teams use for their work on limits to growth. Um, and that is, of course, the infamous sort of series or set of reports that was financed and postulated by the Club of Rome. Uh, and uh, eventually culminating in whatever in our favorite graph, the graph. Right. The graph. The graph that decides the fate of the human <laughs> the gra- race. The graph is a bunch of lines. The graph yeah. is cybernetics. Okay. Everything is cybernetics. That's the great thing about cybernetics. That, that was, There's uh, nothing that yeah. you can look at and be like, oh, that's not very cybernetic of you. It's like, no, that's just part of the feedback. Trust the plan. Right. So what's interesting about cybernetics as well is that uh, culturally, it seems to be associated with uh, automation, automatons, artificial intelligence, neural networking, that sort of series of fields. I just uh, hate, I, I hate the expression neural networks. That was right. the I mean, biggest the net- PR coup of all is, time. Is, is, a, is a bunch of Huey, but I mean, 
for whatever reason, culturally, the phrase cybernetics gets associated with that series of uh, independent fields. For, I, I don't really understand the, the linguistical or cultural uh, melding that resulted in that for most people, but it, it's what's happened. Uh, traditionally, cybernetics was actually meant to be a management system. Uh, but, you know, the, the notion in the 40s and the 50s for science, for big science, was, look, uh, statistics is doing well, computerization is taking off, we have ENIAC, we have the von Neumann architecture coming out in 1945, we have uh, the mass application of mathematics to a vast array of national security and societal problems with the Rand Corporation. And again, guys like von Neumann and others that, you know, are very much like Dr. Strangelove types. Um, and everyone is sort of thinking, okay, we're going to need a way to manage a ton of information. And we're going to need a way to uh, very rapidly with some kind of, I mean, I'm going to go ahead and say this is an early event-driven architecture, um, respond to feedback loops and to generate new pieces of information based on how old contexts of information worked out and so on. Because the, the understanding was that uh, there's a vast array of possible new information we cr could create from old information, but the technology of our time limits us from doing that. Uh, and so we should, at the very least, apply the philosophical principles of this endeavor to societal problems. And we can all kind of see how that's mostly turned out, which is very badly. Uh, well, I mean, it, it's we can say that it kind of has turned out badly in the sense that uh, benevolent, quote unquote, social control programs mostly ended up uh, face planting. But... In a lot of ways, the the notion of uh, feedback in your society is far preferable to what we have now, which is just we're going to impose this upon you. And if you don't like it, that just proves that you're a kulak and you need to get in the camp. Like, Right. I mean, I, I think that the feedback loop is important, Matt said. I'm not saying no, but in the same vein, or, or, or ironically, the ironic thing is that a lot of these social and academic applications and further uh, theorizations that were based on the early cybernetic sort of circles uh, resulted in theories and applications that had nothing to do with feedback loops. Somehow, in, in all of the noise of their bullshit. They forgot basically the very simple principle that uh, McCulloch and uh, Viner developed, which was this notion of a mathematical feedback loop resulting in sort of a steady stream of new information that, you know, that could then manage other pieces of information. That was basically the heart of cybernetics. Yeah. So and if you want an example of just going horribly wrong, I mean, you can look at kind of all of the operations research guys that were the young guns during World War II ended up running the Vietnam War. This was 
<laughs> this was literally Robert McNamara, who is literally one of these young guns doing the operations research for how do we bomb uh, 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 Germany most efficiently. And he and his uh, band of whiz kids ended up running the Vietnam War and trying to incorporate, like, guys, we need some data. We need some data. How, what 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 deliverables are we prioritizing this uh, this war cycle, this war sprint? Uh, body count, yeah, body count. We got to get some body count. We got to make sure that uh, you know the body count has become unsustainable for our adversary. Nick, is that you? Yeah. Hey, can you hear me? Yes. Yep. So you were just talking about uh, Robert McNamara. Hold on, I got to turn off speaker. Yep. <laughs> I'm here. <laughs> so, uh, Nick Mason is joining us uh, live from, I believe it's a Denny's. Is uh, that McDonald's, here? actually. Uh, McDonald's? Okay. I heard eggs. I definitely heard eggs, but I wasn't sure if they were the uh, the cylindrical variety or not. More, more, more specifically, I would say, actually, it's the McDonald's parking lot. <laughs> uh. Is it the drive-through or is it the parking lot? Uh, no, it's in between. It's it's near the drive-through. But why don't uh, you go through the drive-through while we're while we're recording? I was actually thinking about it. Like, you know, you go through the drive-through and you just stop and you declare yourself a sovereign citizen. You're not legally inside the McDonald's. No, no, I'm just... And you're not committing any crimes. You can't even be detained. I mean, just ask them if you're being detained, and they'll tell you that, you know, you're free to go. And you're like, yeah, I just just want my food. I just don't feel like moving. It's just kind of a stalemate. Have you guys been doing a a show? (laughs) Have we? Have we? Oh. So, so who is Cybernetes? <laughs> you know, it's funny. Uh, I think that the Greek root word uh, Kubernetes. Uh, Kubernetes. I'm, I'm I sure thought about. it was the ferryman. So I was talking to a listener of the show actually, who was who was visiting me recently. By recently, I mean last night. Um, and I was under the impression that it was he was the ferryman. Uh, over the river sticks but that is that is not correct no i think that the word um uh it's it's basically it basically means rudder or pilot like it it basically refers to a part the part of the i thought it meant i thought it meant like the oarsman and i thought it was in reference to the oarsman over the river sticks no, no. Uh, it, so it has it has its root in Plato, I think, I believe, and it refers to. Uh, I mean, Plato sort of uses it in this in a, in a paradoxical way, where he's referring to it as not in its mechanical sense, but as uh, a political sense for a mechanical word. He basically gives a mechanical word from Old Greek uh, a political meaning. Um, but it, it's it's interesting that I think that Kubernetes is really uh, Google's attempt at uh, containerization, which is uh, <sighs> kind of a it, first of all just a terrible technology, but second of all, um, very on the nose 
sets and this notion of, well, we're going to have a system that manages sets of complex information for new information output um, and, and so on. So I thought that was I thought that was interesting. I, I was reading up on the actual uh, Greek origin of the word, and then I realized, oh, that's where uh, Google got the idea to name their container tech uh, Kubernetes. I assume they learned Greek at uh, you know one of their various Masonic orgies. It's a Masonic. hell of a feedback loop. They there. probably learned Greek at Temple. What are you talking about, Masonic? <laughs> they, they're they're the wrong race for Masonic. I think only like weird like white guys become Masons, not not uh, Soviet Union Jews. You get it all mixed up. There. Uh, Robert McNamara. Uh, that guy. So it's funny that you're talking about uh, McNamara and, and our uh, our episode with Mencken's Ghost, sort of on management science. We actually brought up McNamara and uh, his his sort of whiz kids at uh, at the State Department at the Defense Department, or you know, kind of infiltrating the scene there. And in our episode uh, on on Lockheed Martin, we actually talked about how uh, McNamara. <laughs> Uh, in all of his wisdom, when he was running the DoD, he uh, he basically like made all the wrong decisions consistently, and he used he claimed to have been using like his team of whiz kids and a bunch of statistical science to back him up, and then um, you know all of his private diaries were found by sort of uh, DoD historians when they're putting together his memos and to try and write the history of the Vietnam war. And it's basically all just made up. Like he, <laughs> he wasn't actually doing anything to really, uh, kind of back up a lot of the science. So called science behind the Vietnam war. He was just shooting from the hip on like 85% of it. And yeah. Then, guys, and our, our QPIs, uh, you know, you got to, this this core is sorry the numbers don't lie guys right well it's gonna go up 10 percent of it where he was just like straight up lying because johnson told him to and then there was another maybe five percent where there was maybe actual scientific work being done i'd have to take a look at that i i I, i'm not trying to defend anybody here but i I, what i want to say is that it's not so easy to throw stones when or it shouldn't be so easy to throw stones because no no no. I'm not, I'm not i'm not saying that mcnamara was a dumb guy or that okay, he made okay. he made up everything in his life mcnamara was actually a very smart guy yeah. um, but it is interesting that he he realized it seemed as though from his perspective and if you watch his the documentary that was made about him and with him at the same time fog of war fog of war um it's very interesting insight into his character as well as sort of how statistical science tried to worm its way into the DOD and government. Yeah. And what you, what you realize is that, uh, you know, McNamara really found himself in an implacable position because he couldn't really uh, take a massive bureaucracy yes. like DOD. I mean, it, even into the like early 60s, the DOD was already this massive, massive bureaucracy with a huge array of contractors and huge industrial base that it was tied to. It was, I mean, we talk about it now being out of control. It was already out of control. 
essentially 60 years ago. Well, Eisenhower was, was the guy who said that. And, right. And in terms of number of people this. involved, probably even more so. Like this is right. like this is when they were essentially employing half of coastal California. Right. <laughs> yeah. No. Yeah. The aerospace was built on aerospace industry was built up around this. Uh, when Elon Musk uh, was asked, why did he decide to put SpaceX in Los Angeles. I mean, geez, you know, what a what a shitty town to do business in. He said basically it's just it has half the country's aerospace engineers. And that's all because uh, Lockheed and um, what was it Donald Douglas at, at some point, uh, a lot of those aerospace companies were there and they were doing defense contracting. They're uh, still there. I mean, Raytheon is still there. Boeing is still there. There's a lot of smaller defense contractors still in basically Lockheed around Los Angeles. Lockheed is literally right across the street from the old Yahoo complex. Yeah. I mean, there's a ton of them. The if you, if you ever do... Get a guy talking to you real, uh, real stern-like. Talking about L.A. or do, Silicon Valley? If you ever do no, the drive to... Valley. Valley, yeah. If you ever do the drive to LAX, uh, you will see, if you're going down the Harper Freeway... Uh, right before you get off the turn to go into the tunnel that'll take you to LAX, uh, you will see just a row of all the big time defense contractors, and they've been there for a, a long time. Um, but so, anyways, uh, Mac McNamara, when he gets in, he realizes that his work in the statistical office during World War II and his work at Ford. Um, basically were not transferable in the slightest to the way that the bureaucracy worked. Um, and it's an interesting test case in cybernetics in that you show up at in, in an environment that you think would actually be even more applicable to that realm of information, right? You know, a bureaucracy in and of itself is in theory and on paper, especially to a guy like McNamara, who comes from industry, comes from military science, uh, you know, it, it should just be a big information engine. Uh, it, it, it really should, all, all it should be doing is discerning signal from noise, producing quality information, doing aggregation, acting like a computer. Uh what he quickly realizes is that the point of bureaucracy and certainly the functioning of the American one uh, was neither of those at all. I mean, it had none of the aspects of the computer. A lot of its information was highly politicized. Um, there were a lot of functionalities that were very much rooted in character egos and um, politics and were rooted in larger agendas that were sort of even beyond his understanding and beyond his control. Even as, you know, head of DOD, he was sort of beholden to this set of bureaucrats that seemed more powerful than him. Mm, so you know, he, he was really, he was really unable to actually apply much of this, uh, theorized cybernetic system to, uh, to the DOD. And you see it to the, you see it even today where, um, you know, there's all there's so many accounting shortfalls at the Defense Department, and some of that I assume is just like bribing and you know like embezzlement. But a large chunk of it appears to be uh, just the fact that the bureaucracy with the DoD has ulterior agendas and is not going to process information adequately unless it absolutely needs to or it's made to. Uh, and it's sort of a th this notion that you can build 
these sets of people to then utilize the technology to then produce information based on feedback of information and that you then take all these circles of people and circles of technology and you mishmash them up and you have uh, your cybernetic society where everything is harmonized and perfect um, you know it, it has only not worked out that way but the attempts to make it work that way have made the situation uh, a lot worse I think in the end yeah, yeah. I mean, it's like, it's a little bit of a straw man, but not really to say that the notion of cybernetics is fundamentally sound. Like, feedback loops exist. Like, it's a useful conceptualization. But then you, you kind of take that to its logical conclusion and say that, you know, cybernetics can't fail. It can only be failed. You're, you're just not supplying the right data. You're lying to can the I algorithm. Why would you do that? Can I ask you a few catch-up questions? Because I'm sorry, I missed your... I, I'm sure you gave a definition of cybernetics. Uh, have you discussed mind control? I mean, that's what the show is, right? Like, our readers, our, our listeners are slowly coming under our sway. Oh, is that, what, is that what you're doing here? No, we have not talked about it, Nick. Please send donations. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, do you guys we need know to think of like an MK Ultra trigger word so they send the donations. Uh, well, that's that's what I wanted to talk about a little bit is MK Ultra. I mean, something we've talked about on the program a lot, but a lot of the, as I understand, so a lot of the early research in, into cybernetics, uh, which is I, I mean, it's it's basically it was an interdisciplinary sort of thing. We had uh, psychologists, mathematicians, and stuff who were involved in. Outside of you have the Stanford Research Institute and people like Gregory Bateson, who were Gregory Bateson was of course married to to Margaret Mead. Yeah, we brought up Margaret Mead very briefly, and she was she was a member of these uh, societies, cybernetics. We well, had the cybernetic that, groups, and yeah, had, yeah. you had the Macy Foundation, and these a lot these were the people who were being tapped for experiments on uh, LSD. Really? Yes. Uh, specifically, you had uh, what, what was his name? Uh, what Larry Abramson? No, no, uh, it was uh, Abramson. He was a, I think he was a, a pediatrician or something. But his he was a MK Ultra operative. Did work for the military, uh, chemical warfare during the, the Second War. And th these were the, uh, members of what oh, was called at different times at one point it was called the cybernetics group uh but they had the umbrella of the, the macy foundation you can look into some of the people who were involved i mean it was uh there was a group frank uh what is it? frank fremont smith and you had gregory bateson uh margaret mead lawrence frank and they the early ones they were doing research into basically classical sharing their research and things like classical conditioning and hypnotism. And then they started, some of them started getting on board with the LSD experimentation. Yeah. I mean, this is kind of like what we were talking about where it became a brand. Like it's any, anything that plausibly has ideas of metaphysical feedback and control, you can brand as cybernetics and it gets you in contact with a lot of other uh, relatively prestigious at the time uh, academics who were also interested in the same thing. 
So it becomes a it becomes an interesting way of percolating certain ideas uh, through that community and uh, for kind of getting some intellectual panache behind like, ah, like, well, isn't it important to manage society? And isn't society fundamentally an organism? Therefore, LSD in the water supply and Queen of Hearts, Queen of yeah, Hearts, Queen of that's Hearts. That's why the, you hear, that's why the, one, of, one of the other foundations or societies, I think, that emerged out of that was called the human ecology. I mean, that's what Gregory Bateson was working on, human ecology. So that's, can you explain, I, I'm sorry if some of this is redundant, uh, what people like this, how they would be interested in uh, the human mind and w from a pers from a cybernetics perspective what yeah well, i mean a lot of the a lot of the progenitors like we we talked uh briefly about uh optic uh optic nerve guy actually i think at uh at some at some uh length here uh mccullough like the the like so this is kind of the the interface between like okay we understand the brain is a machine we don't really know what it does but it's a physical object we know that you know at the limit you hit this part and you go blind you hit this part you lose your sense of balance you destroy the entire thing and even if the blood supply is still going you still die so we know that it's pretty much the thing and we look at these tiny little components like the optic nerve. It's the first part of the brain to really be studied in detail because it is so small. It is so important. It's something that you can even kind of a little bit experiment with because you've got a lot of people that are blind in one or both eyes um, through either brain stuff or nerve stuff or uh, like actual physical eyeball stuff. So you start looking at this uh, this particular bit of nerve tissue and like your optic nerve is actually part of your brain. It's not like telephone wires. It's actually just this tiny little computer with receptive fields on one end and then a whole bunch of just brain stuff between the receptive fields in your brain proper that does all the signal processing. Yeah, it's it's yeah. an old system. I mean, it was evolved very early on and the cerebral cortex, which is largely attributed to higher order functioning is very unique to humans, but most uh, land animals and ocean animals have eyes, um, especially the ones you know above water because they're very useful. And that was something that evolved a long time ago. And it's a simpler system. And it's not as, um, it's not something that your brain evolves. You don't learn how to see. It's really just something that is genetically coded in. And so there's not all this, uh, all this nuance to individuality that the, that nerve system is going to have across individuals like you would have with somebody who speaks different languages or has different life experiences. People see the same colors, you know, setting aside color blindness. I mean, that's a very small group of people. Everybody sort of sees the same thing as opposed to understanding or interpreting. That's much more difficult to, to model and understand. But I think that's why we're able to, to grapple with that part of the human brain much easier than the rest of it because it's it's much more uniform. I mean, if you tried to interact with the brain, 
for example. Um, it's much easier to put an electrode in the back of the head where the, uh, the visual cortex is uh, and then just simulate light showing up on your eyes. The brain will register as like your eyes are actually doing it, even if your eyes are closed, uh, than it is to simulate the even the sense of smell. Smell is even much more complicated than that. Uh, and then to to replicate the 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 emotions like the, the fear, which is also somewhat of an old instinct, that's even more complicated. And then even more than that, how do you tell the brain to take the square root of seventy seven? I mean, you, you, we don't know how to do that, and it's really it's 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 just orders of magnitude of complexity. And uh, at some point, I wanted to get into this stuff because the way I always thought of cybernetics is really just the kind of interaction between the brain and, and electronics. I think we've, we've really abstracted it for the first hour or so and talked about all the other things, which I think is interesting and it's worth talking about. But on the technical level, I think this is what I think most people think of when they talk about cybernetics. They're thinking of like the Terminator or thinking of some robot that, you know, talks to, to people or something. And it's... Uh, that stuff is is sort of just mundane engineering, I suppose, but it does have societal ramifications if you think about where it's going and uh, what people are working on. Uh, and I do think it includes uh, artificial intelligence and but, things like that. What is interesting, if I may, Adam, what is interesting to me about this is the heyday of cybernetics when they were organizing these conferences where many of these people went on to do the CIA MK Ultra research. Uh, this was before the computer age began. Mm, that's, I mean, sh to an extent. Well, it wasn't as popular. Not the, yes. the consumer computer age. You still had big iron. The computer age IBM really gets, gets off the ground in like 1943. Yeah. And the von Neumann architecture goes back to 1945. And we're still using that architecture for most computers today. Uh, these guys were all familiar with those early military computers and those early sort of Bell Labs and IBM computers, though, that, I mean, they, they, a lot of them in particular, uh, Viner had access before almost anyone else on the planet did to these machines. That was sort of what inculcated this sense of, uh, I, I think, fascination with machinery uh, to them, as well as uh, McCulloch. Uh, both of them both of them had very early access to these very early computers i i understand that the computer had been invented and that these people were exploring the possibilities that this might lead to let me read a few uh topics that were discussed so at these at these meetings uh these are small list of topics I, i'm just getting this from wikipedia but so in 1946 they were discussing things like self-regulating and teleological mechanisms uh anthropology and how computers might learn to learn yeah Tele okay there, there's your tell though Tele teleological mechanisms like so that's <laughs> like i'm surprised you didn't pick up on that like when you're talking teleology that's like the study of apocalypses right like that's the the study of end estates and like, yes, forever right. <laughs> uh, and then you had you know object perceptions feedback mechanisms and then uh, of course gestalt's uh, psychology child, child psychology memory uh, information theory decision theory I don't know. I mean, it's the you had computers were a part of this, 
you, it was an interdisciplinary thing. And I suppose is this not these days is probably not uh, as relevant because computers are probably at the forefront of all of this. Well, I mean, it, it's almost the opposite. There, there's kind of a ping pong thing going on where uh, a lot of problems get formulated. Uh, to make them amenable to the techniques of the day. And eventually somebody determines that you can just throw like an order of magnitude more horsepower at it. And then you can formulate it in a much more complicated way or not, not even necessarily more complicated, but bigger. Like in, in 2008, um, like the, the huge breakthrough in neural networks that we're still dealing with uh, was essentially, but what if you just throw 100 times more data at it, though, uh, if you just happen to have that much more data? And at by that time, like computers had advanced to the point where you could actually process that much data. So that, that was like the term big data. I mean... What exactly? I know it's a marketing phrase, but what exactly in that context did that mean? Yeah, that's like the University of Toronto uh, uh, whole school of uh, uh, basically just like very simple architectures. Like if you read some of this early stuff, you'll see the term perceptron mm -hmm. uh, thrown around. Like what they were doing uh, in 2008 was just, you know, we make very deep, very wide, very simple, uh, actually, in, in terms of kind of the structural complexity, uh, feed forward perceptrons. And I mean, this starts to cross over into like AI history and the AI winter and all this stuff. But I mean, at the time, I mean, in the 50s, they were trying to leverage a lot of this uh, research that they were doing, like actual groundbreaking fundamental research about, wow, it turns out the optic nerve is really simple. It does a lot of very efficient post-processing. And then your brain just kind of deals with this abstraction that's provided to it by the nerve. And so yeah, I mean, well, that's, that, that was actually with a computer. Like, so they, they build this 20 by 20 receptive field where you've got, you know, a 400 uh, wide uh, picture um, and you see what you can do with that with just you know your 400 neurons and then uh, matrix multiplication and a uh, a classifier based on the the result just like a simple threshold they call it a perceptron you can implement it extremely simple it's it's literally a, a one-liner uh, to implement it uh, on you know your ti-89 uh, calculator or whatever uh, and they get some interesting results. There's a lot of hype. It turns out that it's not really all that great. The hype like catastrophically drops off. It turns out it's still useful if you just slightly modify it. What, what is its function though? It's like a, it's an eye. Like what, what is it doing? Yeah. I mean, it's meant to simulate an eye that you've got, uh, these photons that are, are these receptors that light up, uh, so you know, just kind like of uh, detecting an edge or something. What, what is what is the actual I mean, processing going on? The, the idea was, I mean, this is like the formative, like I show you a picture. Is this a tank or not? Like I show you a picture. Is this a missile silo right, or right, not? Right, right, right. Well, uh, how to recognize the object. I, 
I found one thing also that was interesting is that they had a question and they were asking this question for one of their topics in 1952. And the question is, do chess playing automatons need randomness to defeat humans? Mm. Which I find interesting because, of course, in what was it, 96 was when Deep Blue defeated uh, Gary Kasparov. Well, he defeated it. Um, I think he did lose it one game, but I think he ultimately. He no, he lost the match. Oh, you mean the first round? He eventually beat it, though. I mean, I don't, I don't know the lore he, exactly, but won, eventually he did. Yeah, it was like he won one. There was a tie, and then like the last few were blowouts. And the suspicion was that there might have been some augmentation to that specific algorithm, yeah. but subsequently, now it's like you can run shit on your laptop that'll just BTFO the right. best chess player in the world. Yeah, yeah, yeah it was. Comp- yeah, right. I, I think I think you're right, Nick. Though, yeah, I think I get what you mean. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and so I'm not sure. I'm, I'm not understanding computers. I did. Did Deep Blue use randomness to defeat Gary Kasparov? Well, there was it people messing with it, so maybe you could interpret right. it that way. Right. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't. It doesn't need to. Is the short answer? Like you can. So you can have. A, so a, the way that almost all. Uh, of these game playing algorithms work is you have a uh, situation like the current layout, like the current information available to the algorithm. And that has a certain score associated with it. And then you do a subsequent move that changes the state and you have a score associated with that state. And so, like, you can run trees of this and be like, well, if I make this move and he makes this move and I make this move and he makes this move, like, this is the last score we end up with and I pick, like, the best end state. So you can do, like, you know, very efficient tree pruning. You can do uh, a lot of, like, weird tricks and hacks. The interesting thing that happened relatively recently was the uh, solving not solving solving but by now there are go uh yes yes algorithms that can be tfo like the best go players yes. in the go, world go is a far has far more permutations right. than chess right right yeah. so like chess you have a, a limited number of moves that you can make like relatively uh based on go so you like if you're looking at these trees of i make this move like one of my 30 moves that I can choose. And then the computer makes one of 30 moves. Whereas go is like, you know, I make one of 60 moves and he makes one of 60 moves. So it branches a lot faster. And the innovation was uh, essentially that they were able to do a combination of uh, really good evaluation of uh, positions by essentially treating the board like a bitmap, yeah. um, like an image, uh, and getting a score function out of that, and an interesting algorithm around self-play that instead of having uh, having to evaluate game, they, they were able to uh, train an algorithm to play against itself and learn uh, by that sort okay. of self-play. Well, if I could jump in and... But, but like to... The, to the point of randomness, it's like, okay, so there's a random element because you can't exhaustively explore that uh, that search space. Right. So, like, there will always be a cut. There will always be some stuff that's on one side of that cut just by happenstance or just floating point error propagation or whatever. 
but you uh it like a lot of the randomness is like a like uh hollywood screenwriter idea of like ah like he didn't expect me to do the wrong thing that'll show him like that's that's not really how it works so uh, so deep blue was ibm and go uh forgot what they called it it was google right and the main difference between them from what i'm hearing and what i understand is that the 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 chess the chess uh, computer was in real time calculating out the decision tree and picking picking the the most likely best move based upon looking forward and just calculating, you know, as as all the permutations there it could possibly go through, uh, and then just picking that that best branch along the tree. But the the Google machine, it approach was basically it was it was a neural network, and it was it was looking at patterns of the board and saying, okay, this looks like this, this looks like this. I'm not going to actually like go through all the future moves. I'm just going to look at this compare it to some like all the other things in my trained data set and then I'm going to match it up to the one where I won and the one that won the most and so I'm going to pick that path but it's actually not computing it like it is in chess uh, or the uh, the, the IBM yeah, I mean, machine there were advancements but you can use the same like you can use the alpha so uh, you can look up this literature I encourage you to do so it's uh, it, it's actually pretty easy to understand. A lot of these things are actually pretty simple once you get down to it. It's just that you need, uh, at this point, these companies are throwing just huge amounts of horsepower uh, at these uh, kind of toy problems. Um, well, is which is the point. real problem the so, lack of horsepower or the lack of data? Because I, in my experience, well, it, that, dabbling that's why with this stuff, AlphaGo was you, interesting because it was a self-play. Right. Yes, that, that's my point, though. But see, I think the biggest problem is getting the data in the first place. You can come up with you know computers because they're pretty cheap these days, but the hard part well, is it, getting that data. It, it's easy if you have something where it's like a uh, like completely visible game state like go or chess or any other um, board game that you're playing where everything is visible um, you can in principle and like there's been kind of a subgenre of uh, publications of just hey like turns out we solved space invaders like isn't that yeah th- cool? this is why this stuff is like toys i mean it's not actually doing anything real it's you could simulate things i guess that's it sort is. of it's eh. it's it's, it's interesting. So it really is simple there though, are, to think about. There it. are like things where states are relatively uh, well known to everyone. Uh, like, well, like the weather. I mean, that that's kind of the big one. It's like people throw supercomputers at it, and they still can't really do it that well. I mean, it, it's gotten better, I think, but it's still very challenging. But that is a real it, world application where yeah, you, you it, could, in theory, do some of this stuff, and it's still it's still really hard. Like even well, could you would would one thing that they would be interested in would be something a machine that could effectively predict human behavior? Yeah, I mean that was the yeah. dream. It was like that's Facebook you know, and Google. That's that's advertising. <laughs> that's what they're trying to do. I mean. This is this is Isaac Asimov writing about this shit. This is uh, uh, well, ironically, Asimov and 
I, I think Asimov released his uh, Three Laws of Robotics book. I can't remember what book that actually was in, but that was iRobot. No, well, there was a book that he wrote before that, well, or something. The, the, the Foundation it. one is his like. No, well, Foundation wasn't the the Three Laws of Robotics. Foundation was setting up. Uh, was yeah they 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 had it was psychometrics and it so which I guess is right in the wheelhouse of what we're talking about which is a quantitative you know analysis of, of human behavior. They, they be really used. glossed over the quantitative. That's, the, that's kind of what an IQ that, test is supposed to be for. Complete MacGuffin and in oh, that of course. Context. I mean, it was a device, right? And the the idea was, you know, how far could you prevent cyclical collapse of interstellar civilization uh, by having enough knowledge in advance is that so is there, that the, there was a I had to look, I had to look it up there so he published a, a book in 1941 or it was a short story called liar in astounding science fiction um, and actually astounding science fiction if you guys aren't familiar with it it was a big influence on a lot of these uh, late 40s early 50s type uh engineers and a lot of the ideas in there and it ended up going into their general thought process behind uh, uh sort of w well we ha we're going to have this technology but what are we going to do with it and that you know kind of leads into the whole vannevar bush era of you know uh, public product prognostications about the use of technology in the 50s and all that stuff but he he wrote this book called or story called liar and that's where he actually introduced the three laws of robotics which i i it, do believe it's also the trope of like expose the computer to a contradiction and it decides that it's gonna commit suicide because right. well, shit, man, have you ever seen the, the john carpenter film dark star <laughs> I have. <laughs> yeah, so. where it has the, it has the smart bomb, and he has the the philosophical argument with the bomb. At the yeah, also yeah. an episode of Star Trek. Like this is a trope. I mean, it, it was yeah, a trope yeah, in like yeah. 1970. Whatever. It's pretty. It's pretty common. Well, let me let me ask you this. It's a question. Let's see if I'm grokking kind of the idea here. I have been curious about this, but I've never extensively read too much about cybernetics. So. I'll ask the question, and then I'm curious your, what your answer would be. And also, I want to know if the question is a is a cybernetics question, which is, uh, can machines be made to be funny? Sure. It just has to tell you a joke. Like, like, look at YouTube. Yeah. Like, like, type in fucking comedy stand up. Watch the thing and giggle. It's like the, the machine. I, I think what Nick is really saying though is, can it ad lib a situation, not not just regurgitate something? Yeah, I mean, humor is social. It's contextual. It's like there, there's chatbots. There's an entire genre of chatbots that attempt to do this sort of thing, and they're yeah, kind of mildly funny. Right. Like it's well, actually, it's somewhat ironic that they're funniest when they make the most egregious errors. So I don't think that quite matches what your standard is nick but i think well uh, no it, it is like that's that's no, the behavior that can be no, cultivated no, no. He, he's talking about can you make a stand-up comedian who is actually you you think the guy is like clever i mean it, it not stumbling upon itself is not really being funny it's it's just uh you know the the whole thing is kind of a joke itself but 
I, I would argue that. Um, so I think uh, on a, a if for lowbrow humor, I think it's good. I think for if you want to slice the population up to talk about the lower rungs, I'm sure I'm sure a computer can make them laugh. Uh, I hope I'm not sounding you know too arrogant in saying that, but I think no, that that would be my exact position is that like yeah, you could have a machine that makes people laugh because they're stupid yeah but you make you know humor this is one of the things if you're trying to simulate the human mind with a machine or you know it humor is one of those things that is very unique to people and it it is always one of those when people try to study humor i've always found it kind of interesting because it the thing about what is funny is is it funny you know it's not you can't give a definition of you, you need more. You need more autism, Nick. You can. You can kind no, of. No, he doesn't. No. Delineate no, these things. The world doesn't need more autism. Like unex, unexpected context shifts are funny. Like unexpected context shifts that still make sense are funny. Well, of course, a lot of. I mean, look, a lot of sketch comedy, for example, is very formulaic, and you know. There's, if there's a formula, then it's something that you can repeat and you can. But it's not like the so like context shifts that work. So it's like the um, uh, the uh, you know help help help. I think I uh, I think I sh- like uh, I've had a horrible uh, accident. I think my uh, I think my friend is dead. You know, this being in the context of a nine one one call. It's like, okay, calm down, sir. Can you please make sure, like, make sure is he dead? It's like, bang. So, like, okay, I'm pretty sure he's dead now. It's like, ah, yes, he was a, a humorous mis, uh, miscontextualization from, like, a, uh, you know, making sure. It's like, you know, it's like. Well, actually, yeah, I have, I mean, I have like, another. You, you, you can, like, you can do this stuff. You can set up bots that'll like kind of sort of do the stuff you can extract things from it like can it be like really good it's like well there, there's kind of a recursive uh nature to it where nobody finds like nobody finds entire genres of jokes funny or like certain genres of jokes are just funny at a certain age like that's the reason so, why there's a genre of sophomoric humor would you extend this to poetry to, to music as well, you think that a machine could be made to create good poetry? I mean, you can make good dubstep pretty automatically. I mean, it's like, what is good? Like, good is a human value judgment. People pay like. Well, I think it's the, the, tur- the Turing test. I think can be applied. I think the Turing test can be applied in this context. Is that if if a human is unable to distinguish you know, blind, blindly uh, unable to distinguish between what they just heard in poetry or a joke from a human in a computer on a consistent basis, then that is by Turing's definition, an intelligent machine. Uh, and I think that generally gets into some of the stuff that you and I have debated, Hank, uh, about the prospect of general AI. Uh, and, uh, I don't know if we want to get into that, but I would like to discuss that at some point. Yeah, I mean, it, like the cybernetic thing, it's like, okay, you can set up these these feedback systems, but they're only really as good as the decision maker that's in the loop. Uh, a lot of these uh, utopian thinkers kind of saw themselves as the person benevolently managing the system. 
some others were like, ah, but we could put an algorithm in the center of this system. And, you know, for various reasons, some of these worked out and some of these didn't. Some of these are still operating. I mean, there's very sophisticated uh, feedback loops around uh, things like certain economic uh, systems, certain industrial systems. Um, you know, every every airplane essentially stays in the sky only by virtue of a very sophisticated set of feedback algorithms. So, I mean, the, these things certainly can work. Uh, I think the whole generally I think is a little bit ill-defined. I'm not, I'm not terribly, uh, it, I just don't find it interesting. It's like, I generally, I, it's like, well, like, could you invent a general weapon? It's like, well, what, what the fuck do you mean by that? Oh, I, I had a you, weapon that can kill general. anything. Yeah. It's like, well, okay. But like, like, a weapon that could wipe out like 500 million people is like, pretty terrible that, you know, that that's worth looking at too. It's like, yes, but, but is it a general weapon? Is a general weapon possible? Well, like, I, what I think, techniques I think can, you're being a little like, bit glib here. I mean, the, I think the definition what? is the, again, it's like you can use this Turing uh, criterion, which I think is pretty straightforward to understand. And then you could also put in the context of this singularity notion whereby there is sort of a convergence. In, and we already have, computers are already faster in, in they're not, many They're functions. not recursively self-improving. Like this is... But, what, like but why, a, why would a guy like Elon Musk disagree with you? Why would a guy... And I, I would encourage anybody to watch Elon this. Musk uh, not, Elon Musk does not do anything. Okay, first of all... Uh, I admire what he has done with SpaceX and Tesla. Uh, it is an extremely impressive feat. However, a lot of what he's extremely good at is marketing. And uh, he is essentially the Reddit whisperer. Like as Donald Trump is to just kind of like, uh, like fly over America, Elon Musk is to Reddit. I actually agree like, with you in this, but I, I, I don't think you're really looking at some of the other people that have also agreed with this. Um, I think, I think, I, I think Hawking talked about it before he died. I, I think Gates has Hawking talked about it. Like so, and the one thing that I wanted to recommend to people in prep for this, uh, I didn't do that much prep. Um, I'm sure Hank, you know, read more than I did, but uh, I watched a Joe Rogan interview of John Carmack, who was the guy who popped up basically when I typed in cybernetics. Uh, but he was talking about um, obviously his time at, at id software where he developed doom and quake and those are the most famous games he's done uh and if you listen to it you you get a clear sense the guy is pretty intelligent and he has a very good understanding of computers and he he does share the concern um and probably more so than musk because one of musk's, musk's projects is he's working on this thing called a neural link which and again i i agree i think musk is sort of just sort of playing out shit that we've all seen in video games. I mean, I actually don't think his ideas themselves are that profoundly innovative. The execution is incredibly impressive. I, I 
I don't think that's something to take for granted. But the ideas themselves are not necessarily groundbreaking, in my humble opinion. But um, but one of the projects he is working on is this thing called Neuralink, and it's supposed to integrate the human brain with the functionality of a computer in a, an attempt to give humans somewhat of a leg up in the what he anticipates is the coming uh general AI threat. So the singularity, in other words. Uh, and uh, Carmack uh, is not even that optimistic. He thinks in the next 10 years, you probably could see something given uh, trends. So I think that those are all very smart people. And I think it's it's hard for me, at least, to dismiss it. Um, and I, I have done a little bit of stuff with, with neural networks. I'm by no means an expert. Okay, I think you have more experience than this, uh, Hank. But I'm, I'm wondering if you're you're somewhat biased too, and that you don't want to perceive your own industry as somewhat of a potential danger. Uh, oh, I, I, no, I, I think they're completely dangerous. I think it's incredibly dangerous. Uh, I just don't think so. Like when people worry about general AI, it's like, I mean, that that's what I was trying to capture with the, okay. the analogy about like the general weapon. So like, can I, can it, I ask it, a question? there's so much shit along the way that is not like this recursively improving Skynet. Like, it just gets infinitely smart. Like, you don't need infinitely smart in order to completely screw yourself. Correct. Like, nuclear explosions are not unbounded feedback loops, they're just local feedback loops but you still don't want to be anywhere near one. So, like, it, it's totally possible. It's like intern-level stuff to have just swarms of killbots killing every humanoid that moves in an entire zip code. Right. Like, that, that would be bad. That's totally possible. That does not require... Uh, like Skynet level and also like it can write poetry. Right. So like, you know, the, like, yeah, it, it, these, these sorts of dual use technologies or single use technologies are are extremely dangerous and have the Uh, potentiality to be extremely effective. I agree. agree. Nick. So what is the, the advantage when people are trying to create something like this, what what would be the advantage? Why would they prefer that over, a machine that is more specific. Oh, I mean, it it can adapt better. I mean, you, you take a, a drone, for example, and as Hank has mentioned, it has a lot of sort of error correction built in based on sort of real-time feedback loops so it doesn't fall out of the sky. But you can't tell the drone to go open a door. I mean, it's just, it's clunky. But if it was it, like a human, I mean, it could sort of figure things out uh, like a sort of an android. It, it would be able to do much, much, much more and be much more versatile and not vulnerable to something as simple as a net <laughs> being thrown on top of it. It could work out a solution, I mean, so that it could uh, go beyond the, the limits of the anticipated problems because in the in the real world, in the battlefield, in, the, in that context at least, you're going to run across things that the programmer and the designer yeah, does not I, anticipate. I understand why you want your machine to be superior, but you don't want a drone to necessarily be able to flip burgers. I mean, you would have a, a different drone to flip burgers. Yeah, yeah, sure. But in, ter- in terms of making a weapon, I mean, it would be good if you wanted to make it maximally 
able to, I don't know what the word is, killable, I mean, that's the wrong word, Uh, deadly, I guess is the right word, to to maximize its deadliness, uh, you wanted to make it smart. I mean, if you're you're going up against a a tree with the likelihood of it falling on you versus a cougar, uh, I'll take the tree because the tree's stupid. So you want you want a smart I mean, weapon, but how how smart do you need your weapon to be? I mean, we, for example, you have the, the Marine Corps, and they're very effective killers, right? Not exactly but, known, you know, for high SATs. Well, they're they're not necessarily yeah. stupid, but they're not slouches. Yeah, anymore. Special forces yeah, are just, really smart, actually. But uh, I I I'm, I'm only joking. No, I I think I get your point. Yeah. Though. I, mean, I mean, it's like the like the the notion of unbounded recursion is always the thing that keeps popping up. Like that that was one of the reasons why AlphaGo was interesting was because it was a self recursion where you're not depending on inputs to the system. So the concern that a lot of these uh, you know general AI uh, fear people. Uh, have is that like you would get you know two essentially self-improving algorithms or you know by reduction one cop like two copies of the same self-improving algorithm in the same room and they would uh ping pong self-recursively improve against each other in the same way that like you know war is the best teacher like you, you see like these leaps and bounds in uh, like tactics in uh, material and strategy once two uh, countries or two armies actually come to blows. The concern is that uh, you would see the self-improvement process if you had uh, AIs uh, interacting with each other and then soliciting uh, feedback from the outside world. Uh, I mean, that's... That's the concern. I'm. I'm not. I. I don't believe any of this because, like, they're like. <laughs> I've never seen an unbound feedback loop. Uh, I'm much more concerned with things that have bound feedback loops, which I know exist and I know can kill me. So, if it's clear that computer technology has advanced in the past, you know, fifty years substantially, and you've had these major breakthroughs. Uh, do you agree that also social control technology has advanced? To some extent, like depends on kind of what, on what scale you're talking about. I, th- I think it has. I think it has. I think that yeah. my, my think, position yeah, would be that, that the system that they, they in a lot of these people who are involved in cybernetics, these are the people who we had included are people who worked on these sorts of questions. But the creation of synthetic uh, culture, I think that they have gotten a lot better at this. Oh sure. I mean, deep, deep fakes, you know, for example, I mean, Jesus, but, uh, that, that's, that's a really a niche thing. I mean, broadly speaking, the, again, it's to me, it's the, the big advertising social media companies that really are the, the big hive mind that is frightening on sort of a medium term, I guess, basis. I'm long term. I'm, I think people are savvy enough to know that this is actually being done to them. Uh, where is the next threat? I don't know, but I think the potential for just giving your life away to these companies to the point where they can anticipate all of your your carnal desires and provide them to you and basically lock you in effectively to either another person's product or their, or their own products by anticipating your 
your desire to to want to buy it from them gives them so much power and gives you relatively little power to even overcome your own little foibles because they're smarter than you in a sense because they've looked at such large the thing is these these platforms are a threat because unlike in the past where computers were sort of designed in the lab and then they're shipped out you know literally to a, a store uh, and then put in a box and you take it home those things are disconnected from the network the potential of of ai is that it can learn and by having such a vast platform that is really unmatched because the the network effect the advantage of having the large network effectively creates a natural monopoly so that the co- competition can't really break in because it doesn't have anything to offer the nascent uh, user base. Just look at Twitter versus Gap. Uh, you cannot break these things up unless you literally bring in like military force or something or the antitrust justice department. We haven't seen that happen uh, in a long time since Microsoft really. Um, and they didn't even have this, this stuff going on. It was just the, the stupid operating system. But when you talk about the ability to study your behavior, your desires, your likes, your, your own life story, uh, and the fact coupled with the fact that these are natural monopolies, these are very dangerous organisms. They're, and they're run by sociopathic people, I, I mind you, that don't share our sort of moral and worldview framework that I, I would de- deem them very dangerous. Um, just Google, Amazon, uh, Twitter to a limited extent, uh, Facebook. I mean, I, those, those are the big ones that I worry about. Ironically, the uh, the three scientists who developed the, the very, very, very early technology in, in the late 90s, I believe in 97 is when they released their first paper, for uh, for what became deepfakes, uh, while they were, I think, believe Cal Berkeley, uh, all three of those scientists are now employed by Google in their uh, facial recognition. <laughs> there you go, and, man. And, yeah. Data analytics. Book. Yeah, yeah. Like Google really likes you know hiring people by like I swear at this point by body weight. They're just like, hey, <laughs> I would like four thousand pounds of grad student. Here's a uh, Here's ten million dollars. Make there, it happen. There's a meeting um, that Eric Schmidt who used to be the CEO and Sundar Pichai now, but uh, when Schmidt was still CEO, uh, Larry Page, one of the founders, uh, was in the room and he said, um, "You know, I think Google should uh, should hire one million engineers." And like Schmidt just sort of laughed. But I mean, this is where they're coming from. Like it's it's a total domination thing. Uh, Page gave a speech once where he and it was he's just such a weird guy uh and and so unaware of himself uh that this is why schmidt was put in charge of the sort of uh, management side of things uh page became the head of product but he was giving like a commencement address or something at stanford his alma mater and he was basically saying that uh not, not even basically, like literally saying the goal of Google is to create an artificial intelligence. And what was so uh, awkward about it was that he was like grinning ear to ear in this, I don't know, like slimy way. I don't know how you would sort of describe it, but creepy, if nothing else. And having a guy like that, having a company like that with the the weirdos that they employ, if you look at what happened uh, when James Damore got fired and all the people who are like 
lobbying for that. You could look at their profiles and they're all, you know, punch a Nazi, you know, I'm a, I'm a homo, uh, and I'm proud and I'm, I'm LGBTQ. I'm queer. I'm plus this, plus that, uh, weird people, weird, weird, weird people, not normal. And they're developing a system that most people at this point depend upon. I mean, you can't, you can't compete. Let's put it that way. You could sort of survive, I guess, on a subsistence basis, but you cannot compete on a global basis without access to the information that everybody else has access to because you're just going to be at a huge competitive disadvantage. So you end up using stuff like Google, uh, Maps, email, search. Uh, those are and Android, I guess, is their, their mobile platform. YouTube, those are their huge, huge products. And they're run by these creeps. And it's, it's, I don't know what you do. Uh, it's like, yeah, you could be the Amish, something I LARP about, certainly. But I realized that, you know, the Amish, if push came to shove, like, they're not going to win a war. You know, they're, they're being, they're allowed to survive. But that's really at the discretion uh, of the more powerful people. And so that's really what's unfortunate, I think, about all this stuff. Did you know that Google publishes floor plans of all of their offices on Google Maps? I did, but I forgot, so thank you for reminding me. And I, I think uh, I think it's something very interesting to know. Did uh, like <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll leave it at that. You know, it, it's it's not it's not a great so the the decadence that comes from having just a incredible like it, look look at dubai it's like oh god put us on top of this gigantic oil well now we can fly over instagram thoughts to like you know you <laughs> literally acts of sexual <laughs> degeneracy that's right <laughs> to, to shit on them like that's that's google they they you know, there was work involved. There's a lot of people that are there and work hard, but there is essentially like two products that make money there. And they're the oil well the rest of the money or the rest of the company uses uh, to fly over. In some cases, they're literal Instagram e-thoughts. Uh, like that uh, executive that uh, OD'd on heroin with his uh, his whore and his yacht in uh, San Francisco Bay. Stand-up guy, that guy. Uh, <clears throat> I missed that one. What yeah, it's uh, you start digging into this, and it's like, huh? It kind of uh, kind of seems like not a uh, ideal situation, but. You know, this I, I do not want to get into uh, what we previously talked about, the, you know, the fallacy of the pendulum that, uh, you know, naturally this institution must decay. No, it, it's actually possible that maybe they siphon off like half of all advertising revenue forever and can just maintain the rest of it as this useless appendix in perpetuity. Uh, but, you know, on the other hand, there are certain internal dynamics that naturally emerge from having like one part of the company that makes money and the rest being a horde of essentially State Department apparatchiks then diagrammed with sexual degenerates. Like that's that's really the rest of the company at that point. Like, sorry to my Google homies, but like, if you're not uh, if you're not making money 
then you're there for a reason. And it's, uh, it's not necessarily to enable the people who make money. It's, uh, it's maybe for some other reason. So, well, and, and some of it is for, for the ego of the founders. I mean, there was a joke made when uh, they hired Vint Cerf, the guy who came up with like TCP IP protocols. And, yeah. uh, <laughs> and they, they said, uh, he's, he's now part of Google's intellectual petting zoo. Uh, and there is a lot yeah, of people Ray like that. Hertzfield. Yeah. Ray Kurtzfield. There you go. Well, Guido, they're all the same. I mean, there's no need for them to be there. Um, you know, but they, I think it just adds to the ego of the, the place. Um, and, and you're talking about general positive, well, I don't know if you call it positive, but self-reinforcing feedback loops. I mean, this is, this is the network effect. This is why Facebook and Google are dominant. It's what, the thing about Facebook, that would make, makes a little bit more sense to me, but Google just has a lot of computing power. And Microsoft tried to to take them out uh, with because they they have access to the resources uh, to build the infrastructure to comb crawl the web and index it and come up with a way to access it very quickly um, and they they failed uh, to a large degree from a business standpoint or at least a market share standpoint they only have about fifteen percent of the market whereas Google has something like seventy plus I think. I don't really know why, though. I mean, it's to me, it's just like sort of an iron thing. I guess it's the ad targeting. It's um, this is what uh, the founder of DuckDuckGo talks about: is that you know, whereas we at DuckDuckGo are a search company, Google is an advertising company, and so in other words, they they use all the data, and and this is where the self reinforcing thing comes in. They use all the data that they collect on you when you're typing in searches, when you're clicking on ads, or like most of us not clicking on ads, but we're clicking on videos, then it'll recommend a video to you. It's it's learning. It's learning from all that. And the sort of argument is that they can learn faster because of their scale than their competitors. And I, I think there's some truth to that. Like the quality of their results are probably somewhat reinforced by machine learning uh, based upon people's interaction with the results that they present in the beginning. And then if those results are not... Uh, if they don't scroll through the next several pages, they're like, okay, that was a good uh, query uh, return. So we're going to keep doing more of that. And I guess the bigger you are, the better you can scale that across all of the potential queries that are ever run uh, faster than a competitor, even though they can match your computing power. They don't, they can't match your data set. That's really what it comes down to. Again, it's like the, having that data set allows you to learn better, just like uh, knowing how to speak English versus some obscure language. It's uh you you can just access more information better. Um, so I, th th that's the example, I guess, that is the, the, the where, where, whether it's general AI or a cybernetic version of that, it's basically why it's, as you're potentially theorizing, like why they could just keep becoming more and more powerful. Dr. Carlson calls them the most powerful company in human history. I think that's a little bit hyperbolic, but, you know, is the standard oil more important? I mean, I don't know. Energy is pretty important, but um, it is scary to, to see how pervasive the the Google machine is in all its forms. Yeah, I, I recommend uh, the uh, the best interview I've ever seen. Uh, actually, pretty much endorse uh, Alex Jones's uh, version as uh, as told to Joe Rogan about uh, what. 
uh, Google in particular, but uh, most of the Silicon Valley crowd is about as far as their uh, their ambitions with respect to human quote unquote ascension. Uh, I think that's not inaccurate. I think it might be shaded through a few uh, through levels, but uh, I think that's pretty pretty good and it's it's wildly entertaining. Go go and watch that. Yeah, transhumanism. Yeah, and beyond, it gets weirder. I think transhumanism wildly uh, morphs into uh, tranny humanism. Turns out. Like an elaborate mosaic. 